Hello, everyone, and welcome to Then Again at the Northeast Georgia History Center. We have a great guest with us today. We talk about all kinds of subjects ranging all over the world, but today we are going to bring it home to the Appalachian Mountains and to North Georgia, and we have with us Dr. Morgan Ellis of UNG. Thank you for being with us today. You're very welcome. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at the university. So uh, I was hired to be the music history professor, and that's the field that that I have my PhD in. Uh, so I teach all of the history of classical music classes. Uh, I also teach music appreciation. Um, but I also, I happen to be a cellist. And so I was recruited several years ago to direct the orchestra. Uh, so these days I, I have uh, varying responsibilities. <laughs> Well, we, we've pulled you in today to talk about Appalachian music. How did uh, how does someone go from classical music and being classically trained to a front porch fiddle player? I, I mean, that's a really good question. I can I can tell you. So it all started with Bear on the Square, which is the, uh, App the Appalachian Music Festival we have here in Dahlonega every April. The last two have been canceled, but I sure hope it's going to be back next year. Uh, but I went to I went to Bear on the Square in 2014 and just had a transformative experience. I stood there listening to people play on the square, just, just regular folks getting together and jamming all day. I remember I got a terrible sunburn and I, and I wanted, to, I, want, I didn't know anything about what I was hearing, but I wanted to understand it. And so actually the first thing that I did was ask to teach the Appalachian music class, because that's, to me, that's how you learn about something, is you teach a class in it. Absolutely. Um, so, I, so I did a lot of reading and listening and I, I taught that first class and I had a good time. But through that experience, I found out about our local jam that we have at the University of North Georgia in Dahlonega. And it's called Pick and Porch. And it's a group of people, some of whom live in Dahlonega, but some of whom come really far from Ellijay and from Atlanta, from Monroe even, um, every single Friday to play together for two hours in the Vickery House, which is the home of of the UNG Appalachian Studies Center. And so, so I went to one of those jams and I, I just sat and I listened the first time. And then I bought myself a, a cheap $100 banjo off of eBay. It was a, a Recording King second. And I just like learned how to strum a few chords. And I just strummed the chords for about a year trying to figure out what was going on. <laughs> People who are new to the music will say that it all sounds the same. And I totally understand that because for about a year, it all sounded the same. But the people were so nice and I enjoyed spending time with them. And then it occurred to me a couple years in that I play the cello. I could probably figure out how to play the fiddle. And so I borrowed, I borrowed a cheap school instrument and I started figuring out fiddle tunes and the rest is history. Huh? <laughs> Fantastic. So I, I love, I'm just going to repeat what you said because I love it. I have found it to be true in my life. If you want to learn something, teach it. Absolutely. And so in the process of, of teaching, it sounds like you kind of jumped in feet first. Tell us about what, what are some of the main things you discovered? What are some of the, the big ideas of, of Appalachian music? The most important thing, I, I, everything I say sort of comes from a classical background perspective where, you know, we read music, we're obsessed 
obsessed with reading music for sure. And we practice for the purpose of getting better and polishing a performance and then getting on stage in front of an audience. So none, none of that applies to the sort of casual um, for fun music making that has long characterized what goes on in the Appalachians and is definitely what old time music today is. So yeah, learning by ear is that is that just crucial thing that to me is, is so interesting and valuable and fun. Uh, Appalachian musicians have long learned by ear, uh, sometimes because they can't read music, um, but usually just because written music isn't very convenient. It's not handy, it's expensive, and so it takes money and skill. And also most of this music is simple enough that you don't really need pages of notation to, to capture it. Yet at the same time, it's so complicated, you can't capture it in notation. Because the tunes, the tunes are simple. If you think of a fiddle tune as being a sequence of 16 measures or a certain number of notes, there's nothing to it. And they're usually very repetitive. But all of the little nuances to how you time things and how you tune things, and then how you play with other people and adjust what you're doing to fit the instruments and personalities together is infinitely complicated. So you can play the same tune a hundred times with a hundred different people. And every time is a totally unique experience because of who's there and, and what they bring to it. I can see where that might blow a classical musician's mind is things being so it different. It really does. Every I actually, I, I'm, always trying to, I'm always trying to bring students into this. And the first thing that they want is notation. And I just have to say, absolutely not. Don't <laughs> even start. Even if having notation helps you learn the first tune, the first time in the long run, it is going to limit your abilities and your potential. Um, and being able to pick things up by ear and conceive of music as being this sort of living, flexible thing that doesn't have one correct fixed form is, is so valuable. Whenever we talk about history and, and the role of music in history, I always have to remind people they have to disconnect themselves from the idea that we can turn on a radio or a television or look up a song on YouTube or, or, even, or even play a record player or a cassette or an eight track. This is, we're talking about a time when any music that you heard was live and, and played a huge role in the community. So can you speak to what kind of role music played in Appalachia and the centrality of it to, to the culture? Yeah, yeah. That's actually something I say in class all the time. You know, they didn't have YouTube. And of course that's stupid. Everyone knows they didn't, but it's hard. I to think really, people forget about it. They it's don't hard to really come to terms yeah. with like, they really didn't have YouTube and iTunes. Like, like it's because it, we get, we get so completely accustomed to those, to being able to hear any song we want anytime. Right. And that is a recent phenomenon, not accessible to most people for most of history. So the number one function of music in, in Appalachia in say the 19th century would be for dancing, certainly instrumental music. And so dances were really important social events. Uh, sometimes they happened on their own, uh, usually on a Saturday night. And there's lots of people who will talk about this really jarring contrast between Saturday night and Sunday morning. <laughs> So Saturday night, you go out and you get drunk and you flirt and you listen to music that maybe not everyone thinks is appropriate. Uh, the fiddle was called by some the devil's box because there were 
course, some who, who thought it was um, really a, a contaminated evil instrument because of its associations with drinking and dancing, really. Uh, so all sorts of, all sorts of crazy things could happen on, on, fr- on, on, sorry, on Saturday night. And then Sunday morning, you put on your clothes and you clean yourself up and, and go to church. Uh, but th- these dances were just such an important, uh, you know, escape from the work week, really serious, difficult labor that people are undertaking um, in agricultural settings and uh, railroads, a, ch- a chance a chance to cut loose. But then the dances are also frequently associated with occasions that require people to come together and labor alongside one another, like a corn shucking. So uh, they were often used as a way to pay people back for helping out. So you could you could host host one of these events. Everyone gets together and processes the whole season's worth of beans and then gets to have a dance. Uh, but people would travel incredible distances to attend dances. You know, you, you read about someone walking 10 miles to get to an event like this, dancing all night, walking 10 miles back. Speaking of it as a central community and social function, and this is this is how people picked out their wives and husbands, right? I mean, this is this is the way. I mean, there's there's some interaction at church and things, but you go to hang out and sort of go out the crowd and dance with different people. It's it's the music that accompanies that. Well, no, 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 so not not everybody not everybody went to dances because some people thought that they were oh yes too, too lewd, you know, oh, yeah, uh, and some some young women were prohibited from going by their families. But the place that every Everybody went was uh, shape note singing schools. So that's my favorite musical venue for flirting and courting. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and so so those were sponsored by churches because the intention was for participants to learn how to read notation so that they could sing sacred songs in church. And so all of the repertoire is religious and very, very moral, very much about leading an upright life. But uh, and, and young people would attend these schools, usually for two weeks, uh, every single day during the off season when there was no harvesting to take care of. But the, the, the singing schools were one of the few venues in which young men and women could uh, mingle unchaperoned and maybe sit near each other and maybe catch a, catch a few words in between songs. That brings me to another question, which may be a little, little out there, but we all think of, well, most people who think about it think of Appalachian music as banjos and fiddles and, and square dances and things like that. Do you think having having studied it the way you have and performed it the way you have, is there a particular Appalachian style to the sacred music the way we think of it with the secular music? Ah, I, I don't know. I don't think it's fair to say that there's an Appalachian style, but there are regional styles within different sacred singing communities. And so there's, I mean, there's a few different traditions that have long histories in Appalachian churches. Uh, so for example, uh, in Kentucky, uh, there are lots, uh, even today, of Baptist churches that do lining out. Uh, this lined out hymnody where everybody sings roughly in unison, but every all, all a little bit different. A sort of a sort of slow and mournful singing style, and so that's something that you could say is pretty unique to the Kentucky Appalachian region. If we're talking about Sacred Harp, which is uh, a, this notated four-part tradition, there's different ways. Of, like in Alabama, people tend to sing a little bit faster. So if you're talking about maybe that very southern Appalachian region, there's going to be a, a unique style there versus Georgia singers who uh, 
prefer slower tempos on certain songs. I, I don't think I can make any large generalizations. No, that's, that's, <laughs> and the, that's same the question about fiddle and banjo music. If you really want to be serious about uh, picking apart the unique differences between individual players, you will find first that there are differences from county to county. And then at the end of the day, that there's differences from individual player to player. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because we, we've had a, a Dr. Whittemore on in, in past episodes and, and talked about, you know, trying to define... Appalachia, and it needs to be reiterated because you've just made that point. When we say it, you know, the Appalachian Mountains stretch from eastern Alabama up to almost Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, depending upon how you count it. So saying, you know, Appalachia, that's a big old wide area and a whole bunch of different styles and cultures. And I'm sure the music reflects that as well. Yeah, well, to me, the biggest, the biggest problem with trying to define Appalachian music is agreeing on when we're talking about. Because the things that people like to think of as being Appalachian music, I mean, they are, but they're the Appalachian music of the 19th century. And so, you know, fiddle and banjo music, both of which, of course, have origins outside of the Appalachian region. So fiddle music, we have influences from the British Isles, but also from different fiddling styles uh, in other parts of the United States and also from fiddle traditions of Germany. Um, so lots of influences. Um, uh, and then the banjo, of course, is uh, originally a Caribbean instrument, uh, first built uh, by enslaved Africans uh, in the Caribbean islands, then finds its way up to the south and then into the Appalachians, finally into the hands of mountaineers, the 1900s. I'm, I'm wandering off topic, but my point being that it's- no, that's a, a So even, even, the, even those 19th century things, they're Appalachian, but they all, they have roots elsewhere where shape note singing, of course, has roots in New England. But then, of course, people still live in the Appalachians and still make music. And they don't necessarily all sit around playing fiddle and banjo music or singing Sacred Harp. And they're not necessarily the same people. So if we're talking about what music defines the Appalachians today, it just becomes a very, it becomes a very difficult question. Who, who counts, who counts as really belonging here? What cultures get that label of being authentically Appalachian? I struggle with that constantly. I don't have any sort of answer, but I think it's very interesting that when we talk about Appalachian music, we're really talking about music of the past, you know, what Appalachia was 150 years ago, not necessarily what it is. Right. Which is probably the reason that bluegrass is still one of those popular genres that people immediately associate with, but may not be one-to-one -one relationship. Well, and bluegrass actually is a very controversial in some circles. I remember when I was first going to teach a class on Appalachian music, um, I mentioned it to a, a very esteemed uh, senior scholar that I was chatting with at a, at a conference and a, a guy was he was at a Kentucky school a real leader in the field and I told him I was planning on teaching bluegrass in my class and he said oh no no bluegrass is not Appalachian music <laughs> Now, so, so I, and I, I've never forgotten that. I think it's such an interesting idea. Now, on the one hand, it's not. Bluegrass was developed in Nashville as this very commercial form of 
folk based, but you know, performance music by professionals. You could also trace like a lot of the roots of bluegrass um, go back to Chicago and barn dance radio in Chicago. Even where Bill Monroe's from isn't really Appalachia. It's, it's kind of right outside the region. So in, in that respect, it's not Appalachian music. However, let me tell you, I live in Appalachia and everybody plays and listens to bluegrass. And so it's obviously Appalachian music uh, all over. Yeah, we're, we're, we're Appalachians. And if we lock it, it's Appalachian. Yeah. <laughs> In my limited experience, I have gone up against, you know, deans of colleges and astute Shakespearean scholars. But for some reason, no one scares me more than these very, very esteemed uh, Appalachian scholars because they just look at you and scowl like you don't know, like you, you, how, no, no, you silly, silly person. You don't understand. And, you know, one guy's from New York and yet you still believe him. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Before we go, you've you've told us so much about it. You teach these classes. You strummed banjo for a year trying to keep up and then picked up the, the fiddle. What are some of your favorite songs that you've learned in this tradition? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Oh, okay. So, oh, I mean, I can sit here and I can name, I can name fiddle tunes for you. Oh, let's see. You know what? Okay. I might be able to say a few valuable things. Okay. Yeah, it is. So, it's so funny. I remember, I remember sitting there for months and months and it all sounded the same. And then the first tune that really caught my ear as, as, as being, as being different and as being something I really liked, it was a fiddle tune called Duck River uh, that a lot of people play around here. I don't actually even know where it's from. I don't know anything about it, but that was, yeah, that was, that was that first that was that first tune caught my ear and I still I still like to play it um but I've become really fanatic about a few specific repertoires um so I love the fiddling of Tommy Gerald from Surrey County in North Carolina and all of the tunes associated with that region and his playing so he does things like Soldier's Joy and Arkansas Traveler and um and oh Sugar Hill and Fortune and there's just just a lot of good pretty simple tunes but that you can play in such an interesting way. Uh, right now, I'm actually, I'm totally obsessed with the fiddling and tunes of a uh, Indiana fiddler named Gary Harrison. So decidedly not Appalachian, um, a Midwestern fiddler, but old time is definitely not just Appalachian fiddling and styles. And that's that's a, a kind of a frequent, I think, erroneous elision that a lot of people make. They think of old time music as being Appalachian music. And, and and that's, there are so many really influential fiddlers and banjo players who were from the Appalachian region, so many tunes that come from there. Uh, but the practices of, of playing the fiddle and using it in different ways, accompanying it with guitar or banjo or whatever, spread far beyond the Appalachians and always have. So there's many, uh, many great places to look for, look for tunes. Dr. Morgan Ellis, that's all we have time for. Thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything that you think is super important that we haven't covered in the little bit of time we've had you know no (laughs) and and if the answer is no that's totally fine I think that's all there is to say okay we've just gotten three semesters worth of schooling folks in about 20 minutes So thanks for joining us. Um, hope you've had a good as time as we have. That we're going to leave you with it, folks. We hope you continue to tune in to then again. And until we see you at the History Center next time, stay safe and take care. Thank you. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the Donate button on our website at www.history.org 
N-E-G-A-H-C.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. Use promo code THENAGAIN for 15% off your online order. Valid on anything except memberships and handmade items. We'll see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Thanks, y'all.